Yes, we affirm good works are necessary to salvation. Who do you think that I just quoted? Probably a Pharisee, right? That's probably a quote from the Gospels from a Pharisee. They were the legalists, you know, taught that we had to be saved by our works. But you probably think, no, that sounds way too modern. That doesn't really sound like a Bible verse. That must be a papist. That must be a papist, right? Because it's those, it's those Roman Catholics who teach that we have to do good works to be saved. They're the legalists who teach that we're saved by good works. You must be quoting a Roman Catholic theologian. The person who I just quoted telling us that good works are necessary to salvation is none other than Francis Turretin. Turretin is widely considered to be one of the great Reformed theologians of all time. And I could muster quotes from Calvin, Beza, Zwingli, and many of the Lutheran scholars of the Reformation saying the exact same thing. So does Reformed theology teach heresy then? Is it not a heresy to utter the words that good works are necessary to salvation? Today's text is going to provide an opportunity for us to clarify our understanding of salvation as David reveals an important lesson that he has learned over the last three chapters. And that is that God is a rewarder of the righteous. God is a rewarder of the righteous. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel 26. We will read this all the way through together. I would invite you to please follow along in your Bibles, beginning in verse 1, for these are the very words of God. 1 Samuel 26, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east of the Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, Please let me put him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put his hand out against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. 
Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Well, you may be feeling some deja vu right now. As you probably noticed, there's an incredible amount of similarity between chapter 26 and a chapter we looked at not long ago, chapter 24, when David found Saul in the cave. And in there, David was pressured to harm Saul, and he refused to harm him. And then he confronted him from a distance, bringing him to repentance. If you missed the sermon on 1 Samuel 24, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's on the website titled, Honor the Lord's Anointed, because many of the things we discussed in that sermon would apply here, as David says, the very same things. Now, if we had more time, I would have us look at all of the similarities and the few distinctions that this chapter has with chapter 24. There are many similarities and some key distinctions. But for our sake, I think perhaps it would be better to focus on one key area where these texts are distinct. And I think that key area specifically is found in verse 23. Read with me verse 23 again. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. This is the message of the chapter. This is the message of our sermon today. What is it that we have come to learn? What is it that 1 Samuel 26 is trying to teach us? And here's what it's teaching us. The Lord rewards righteousness. He rewards righteousness. We do good in the hopes, I even say the expectations 
that the Lord will reward us. This is the lesson that David has been learning over the last three chapters. Yes, he's been learning to trust God's providence, to wait patiently on the Lord, but he has learned that God rewards his good works. If David will obey God and save Saul's life, then 23 and 24 tell us that David thinks God will then reward David by protecting his life and delivering him from tribulation. David believes that the God we worship is a fair and just God who rewards our efforts. Now, David lived under the Old Covenant. He lived in the first dispensation. And this covenant was primarily a national carnal covenant. Certainly, there was a spiritual element of it, which continues today. But the promises, the laws, many of these things were national covenants, national carnal covenant laws. And so this is why his focus for reward is primarily on his earthly life. God delivering him from his enemies and from tribulations. That when he becomes king, God would establish his kingdom and protect him. He sees God as repaying him on this side of eternity. And he isn't wrong. The Bible is very clear in multiple places that God both disciplines us in this life for our sins and he rewards us in this life for our good works. But our job, when we take these core principles from the Old Testament, when we study a chapter exegetically and determine what is the heart and soul here, our job is to primarily apply these in a spiritual way. Because we live in a spiritual covenant. And the spiritual covenant is the fulfillment of the national physical covenant. And so for us, the message is not so much about God giving you a new car or a job promotion if you or good health if you do good works. It's better than that. It's way better than that. God will eternally reward you. He will give you eternal life. And He will give you even additional rewards in life eternal. He will reward you eternally for your good works. Does this make your hair stand up? How could someone who claims to be a Christian ever say that God rewards our works with eternal life? Maybe you're tempted to deny my application of David's principle that the Lord rewards righteousness spiritually. Maybe you want to keep it here. You want to keep it carnal. You want to keep it here on earth. And if you do that, then I just want to wish you luck in avoiding falling into what we call the prosperity gospel. That road eventually leads down a path wherein you go into the nations and tell people that God will make them healthy and happy and rich so long as they're good little boys and girls. And I don't think that's what 1 Samuel 26 is about. But the greater trouble will not be so much the prosperity gospel. The greater trouble will be when you run across in your New Testament the many, many, many verses that actually do teach that God gives us heaven as a reward for good works. I could quote a lot. Let me just give you two. You don't have to turn there. Just hear these words. Romans 2, 6 through 11. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. God rewards righteousness. Jesus, this is Jesus' very message at the end of Scripture, the end of Revelation. What does Jesus tell us? Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. Judgment day is according to works. Is this not a heresy? How does this square with all of the passages in the New Testament that teach about being saved by grace through faith and apart from works? Because likewise, I could list many of those verses too. Again, let me just give you a few for time's sake, but I could list way more than this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Or how about, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28. Or what about this? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified, Galatians 3.16. How do these harmonize? Does 1 Samuel 26 teach us that we need to abandon the gospel of grace and affirm a gospel of works? Well, this gives us an opportunity to make two important distinctions. They might seem overly nuanced. They might seem small, but I would encourage you, these are incredibly important distinctions to understand how justification by faith is perfectly consistent with judgment according to works. That God will reward us according to our works is not at all contradictory to being saved by grace alone through faith alone. As Turretin says of being rewarded according to our works, we think with others that it can be retained without danger if properly explained. Now, we don't have time to explain it in all of its nuances and details, but we can give two of the most important qualifications that will help you see how David's lesson can be applied to you beyond this life, and it's not at odds with the gospel of grace. Let me just briefly give you those two distinctions, and then we'll dive into them more exhaustively. The two distinctions that must be maintained are this. Number one, rewards are not always merits. Rewards are not synonymous with merit. It can be but it does not have to be, and oftentimes it is not. Rewards are not necessarily merits. That's the first distinction. And number two, the rewards are not what make us children of God. God rewards his children, but the rewards are not what establish our relationship. Your rewards do not make you children of God. Rewards are not merits, and rewards do not make you children of God. So let's talk about this first one, that rewards are not always merits. Sometimes a reward is still an act of grace. Turretin says, the causes of the inheritance must be distinguished from its conditions. 
Works are conditions, but not merits. If eternal life is elsewhere said to be a reward, it does not follow that it is acquired by merits because it is known that a reward from debt differs from a reward from grace. God can reward our work, which he had no obligation to reward. God can reward us for a work that he had no obligation to reward. And guess what that's called? Grace. That's called grace. Sometimes you reward your children for obedience. Your children obey you and it pleases you and you reward them. But guess what? They did not, strictly speaking, earn that reward. Your children are supposed to obey you even if you're not handing out candy and rewards. They're supposed to obey you, yet out of your love and kindness and grace towards them, you will still sometimes reward them when you didn't have to. That's called grace. Rewarding a child for obedience comes from a place of grace. So it is not equivalent to an employer rewarding his employee with a paycheck. These are two entirely different things. One is of grace, the other is owed. And something owed is never gratuitous. It is never gracious. It is never an act of grace to give somebody something they deserve. That's not grace. That's merit. And God is never, ever, ever, ever in our debts. God does not owe us anything. And he never will. He owes you nothing. He will never be in your debt. Our works are never so good that God has to pay up. That is why Paul can say in Romans eleven six 6 that salvation, quote, is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If something is owed to you, if you've merited something, it is a contradiction to call that grace. Grace is no longer grace if it's earned, if it's merited. So God can reward our works even though he doesn't have to. And that makes the reward real, but it makes it grace. Not debt, not merit, not an owing. Additionally, rewards can be of grace when we view how sometimes we are over-rewarded beyond what we really, technically speaking, deserved. Certainly our good works, when you do good works, those good works certainly are not worthy of eternal glory. But that's what God gives your works nonetheless. He overpays what you actually earned. If we were dealing in merit, then God would only give exactly what the work itself demanded. That's merit. That's payment. But God not only gives what he does not owe, he gives way beyond what we actually have earned. And again, that makes it grace. So God can reward our works with eternal life, but that is not the same thing as teaching that our works merit eternal life. Justification, which God graciously bestows through faith apart from your works, that is the merit. The reason you get to be rewarded, the reason you get to go to heaven one day, is because you have been justified by grace through faith apart from works. So here's the key. Justification is not a reward for your works. 
God has never and will never reward a person with justification. Justification is not a reward. Rather, it is the justified whose works will be rewarded. So the unjustified are not rewarded with justification. It's the justified whose works are rewarded. And this leads us to our second distinction. Our rewards do not make us children of God. They are only given to us on the basis that we already are children of God. Justification is when you are forgiven, when your sins are cast as far as from the east from the west, when you have a restored relationship to God, that place, when you are forgiven and made righteous and restored, that happens by grace, through faith, and your works play no role in that process whatsoever. But once you are forgiven, once you become a child of God, once you become adopted, then as a forgiven child, God can, like you do with your children, reward your obedience. Perhaps let's continue this child analogy. Not long from now, my son is eventually going to, dis to discover the joy of crayons. And he may, from a very young age, try to draw me a picture. Due to his youthfulness, this picture will not, objectively speaking, be very good. But it will please me. It will please me so much that I will hang it on my refrigerator. In fact, it might even please me so much that I reward his work and take him out for ice cream. In this analogy, my son is receiving a true reward for his work. He did output and he received an input. This is a true reward. In other words, it wasn't just an act of random grace. I didn't just randomly say, here's some ice cream, son. I paid him. But notice a couple of important things. I would not have been unjust to not give him ice cream. I could have just said, thank you, son. I didn't owe him ice cream. So yes, I rewarded him, but it was not merit. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. I freely chose to reward it because his work was a reflection of his heart for me. So I'm using his work as evidence of his heart, and I am rewarding his faith through his good works. I didn't owe it. And I would even argue this, the reward that I gave him was worth more than what the work truly demanded. In other words, if I took this, objectively speaking, pretty lousy picture that my little toddler son drew and tried to sell it on Amazon, how much do you think I'd make for it? Nobody would buy it. Nobody would want it. It wasn't worth the money I spent on ice cream. So my son was rewarded, but it was beyond what he deserved. It was not something I was obligated to reward him from. And then this is what's important. I did it because he's my son. In other words, my son and I were not hostile to each other. And then he gave me this picture and I said, oh, I got to adopt you. I've got to love you. I got to, you should be in my family. Look at this amazing picture. You're, okay, I forgive you. You're part of my family now. The reward came from an established relationship. The reward did not itself establish the relationship. Does that make sense? If some random guy approached me on the street and gave me a really bad picture, I wouldn't pay for it and I wouldn't hang it on my fridge. 
My son's drawing was lovely because something in the past occurred which established our father-son relationship. And it is from there that I can reward him from his works and I can even discipline him for his disobedience. But it's all taking place in a peaceful covenant that has already been established before his works. Now, this is an imperfect analogy, but I do think it's helpful to see the role of God rewarding our works within the larger framework of a gospel wherein we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. Our works play no role in justification. You are justified, you are made right with God, you become children of God, you are adopted into God's family. All of these things happen in justification, and your works cannot do that for you. Your good works will never earn you a right relationship with God. More importantly, your good works will never atone for the sins you've already committed. It doesn't matter how many good works you do in your life, you still have sins that need to be paid for, and your good works can't do that. We don't even do that in human law. If someone broke into my house and stole a bunch of my stuff and, and harmed me in the process, and then I took him to court, would the judge say, well, you know, uh, two weeks before this, he saved three people from a burning building. So he's actually, he did two bad things to you, but he saved three people. So his three good works nullify the two bad works. So he's free to go. That's not even how human court, it doesn't matter how many good works you've done. If you've committed a crime, you're going to pay for it. Your good works can never forgive your sins. You can never outwork your sins. You need to be forgiven apart from your works. You need to be justified apart from your works. But once you're forgiven, once you're made clean, once you're adopted as children, God can say, obey me and I will bless you. When you try to please your heavenly father, when you obey your father's commandments, he will reward you sometimes in this life more importantly in the next. And so I hope you see that there is no conflict between a salvation by grace through faith apart from works and the doctrine that heaven is our great reward. Very rarely does he is heaven ever spoken of as a gift in the Bible. It's spoken as of as a reward. And there's no contradiction between a God who justifies sinners apart from works and a God who renders to each person according to their works. And here's what I want us to see. Here's what I want us to spend the rest of our time with. This is really good news. It was important for us to clarify this message so as not to confuse the gospel with works. But keep in mind that even though this, we had to make this clarification, this, 1 Samuel 26 is not David going through some nuanced uh, academic hair splitting. This was not an academic project for David. For David, this was a message of great news. As Turretin says, it is not a doctrine merely theoretical, which feeds the mind with fruitless knowledge, but practical, which affects the will itself and renews it. If we spent all of our time today focusing on how this message doesn't compromise the gospel of grace, then we would actually miss out on the hope it was intended to communicate to us. We will miss out on the comfort that David himself drew from this lesson that he learned almost the hard way. The Lord rewards the righteousness and faithfulness of, of his people. This should fill us with joy. Let me give you three reasons why. Why is this such good news? In light of its academic difficulties, why is this good news? 
Well, for starters, it reminds us that our God is a personal God. Our God is an intimately personal God. God did not just create the world and then passively sit back watching it unravel. God is intimately involved in each of our lives. As Psalm 128.1 says, The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. He is so close to each and every one of us that He can see your works, He can see your effort, He knows what you're doing, and He can delight in you and be glad. The second reason this is good news is it gives us reason to hope in God. Because it reminds us of His justice both to what is good and to what is evil. You see, Judgment Day will not merely be a showcase of who believed and who didn't. It will be a total vindication of God. God will vindicate Himself on Judgment Day. It will be a day when God's word and His works are vindicated as He proves to the entire created order that His people truly were the righteous in the earth. Everyone will see it. Our works serve as a proxy of our faith. God is, in fact, judging whether we are believers or not believers, and our works are the evidence that the great judge uses in court to prove to the rest of the world that those whom I brought to myself, those whom I saved, have proved that they are my people. They are the righteous. The whole world will see that he who began a good work in us actually did complete it. Our reward serves as a justification of our justification, in other words. God has forgiven you, He has transformed you, has filled you with the Spirit. Prove it. Prove it. The unbelieving world doesn't have to believe that message. On Judgment Day, they will. God's going to prove it. He's going to vindicate you. He's going to prove that you are His, and the whole world will see your righteousness. He will vindicate us. He will vindicate himself. His people will be manifestly seen to be the ones led by the Spirit, dying daily, being conformed to the image of Christ, bearing their cross. The message of our sermon today glorifies God by reminding us that there is a vindication coming for him and his bride. The analogy I like to use, have you ever heard the expression, women are not supposed to wear white to a wedding? Why? Because you're not supposed to compete with the bride. Everybody knows in how the American system and how we do weddings, the bride is supposed to be the glorious one. How awkward would a wedding be if all of the bridesmaids had expensive wedding dress, white wedding dresses with long, glorious trains? How awkward would that be? The bridesmaids aren't supposed to wear the wedding dress because it's not about them. The husband is delighted when the entire room focuses on the glory of his bride. The wife is supposed to be the glorious one. The whole room is supposed to see the glory of this bride, and it brings the husband joy when that happens. That's judgment day. The whole world will see the glory of Christ's church, and we will all stand amazed at how beautiful God has made us. We are not just going to be an equal lump of sinners, and some of us have to be forgiven. And some of us happen not to be forgiven. There will be a manifested glory. Those who did good enter heaven. Those who did not, judgment. 
See, hell is not a place that God sends people who disbelieve in Jesus. That leads us to our second point. Justice is not only vindicated in God rendering the righteous reward. It will also be demonstrated in the unrighteous receiving their recompense. Faith in Christ is what saves you from hell. But lacking faith, disbelieving in Christ, is not what sends you to hell. Sin sends you to hell. Doing evil sends you to hell. People don't go to hell for not believing in Jesus. They go to hell for being sinners. And in hell, they are paid for their sin. They are rendered a just recompense for all of their sinfulness. Hell is a place where God's justice is made manifest. And this too, believe it or not, brings glory to God. We see this, a small foretaste of this in our own legal system. What happens in a human court of law when true justice is served? It's a glorious thing. People will often weep tears of joy and relief and comfort and satisfaction knowing that what was wrong has been righted. By the way, if you don't think this is a hopeful thing, you think that sounds too harsh, let me just remind you, the Apostle Paul definitely took hope in knowing that one day God will judge his enemies. He says this explicitly about Alexander the coppersmith. In 2 Timothy 4.14, he warns Timothy, stay away from Alexander. He did me great harm. He's persecuting the Christian church, but here's our comfort. Quote, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Alexander is not just going to hell for not believing in Jesus Christ. He's going to hell to pay for his sins. We will stand in awe of God on Judgment Day, when all the world's wrongs are made right. In this life, true justice is never fully accomplished. We can can only get so far to true justice. On Judgment Day, everything will actually be made right. Everything will be fixed. Charles Hodge put it this way, the judge of all the earth will do right. No human being will suffer more than he deserves or more than his own conscience will recognize is just. God will vindicate himself, bring glory to himself on judgment day. David takes hope in that. David knows I'll be rewarded and Saul won't. That's why David doesn't kill Saul. What's the reasoning he gives? Because God will take care of this. If David didn't think God would take care of it, then maybe he would take it into his own hands. But David knows God will glorify himself and he will deal with Saul, so I don't have to. You see how David is drawing hope from this message? It's not an academic exercise. The last reason this should encourage encourage us is because it motivates us to press on in faithfulness. This message means that for all your labors on earth, all your struggles and tears... All the times you wanted to quit this Christianity thing. All of the times that you chose to do what was right when it was so much easier to do what was wrong. God sees and remembers all of those times and you'll be rewarded. You might even forget about some of those times. God won't. He remembers your righteousness. He sees it and he will reward you. So doesn't that encourage us to be righteous? You will reap a reward. 
You see, if we only do good for only reward, yes, that would be selfish. Certainly we are to love the God of gifts more than the gifts. But nonetheless, what David is teaching us in 1 Samuel 26 is that receiving reward is maybe not the only reason we do good, but it's not selfish or sinful for that to be part of the reason you do good. David says that in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David is saying, I am hoping that if I do this good, God will do the same good to me. So it's okay to make reward part of your motivation for holiness. The next time you're tempted to sin, just remember, God won't reward this. But if I do right, he'll reward me. God did not reveal the concept of rewards to be ignored. <laughs> he revealed this to help us, to encourage us to live holy lives. And I'm sure as you all can attest, we need the help. It's hard to keep faith in this life. It's hard to live holy lives. And by the way, this text, I want us to see, this text reminds us of one of the very many threats the enemy loves to use which makes righteousness so difficult. One of the enemy's favorite weapons, one that I have seen many Christians fall prey to, that he uses to prevent us from receiving our reward is keeping bad company. Keeping bad company. The Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The company you keep matters. Who you spend your time with matters. Now, where am I getting this from? I believe the text reveals this to us because in both of David's rebukes to Saul, 24 and 26, David goes out of his way to condemn and blame Saul's actions partly on the company he keeps. We're told in verse 1 that Saul has partnered with the Ziphites. We learned the Ziphites in chapter 24. And David describes them in his psalm about them as ruthless men who do not set God before themselves. Saul has partnered with evil unbelievers. And David holds them ultimately responsible for what Saul is doing to him. Look at verse 19. Now therefore let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. It is men who stirred Saul up. It is men encouraging Saul to push David out. And by the way, he, he brought this up in chapter 24, verse 9, when he rebuked Saul saying this, Behold, or forgive me, who do you listen? Or sorry, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? In both of his rebukes, he's saying, You have bad friends. And they're corrupting you. If we are to live lives of faith and good works... We must regularly surround ourselves with like-minded company. This is important because it is not uncommon for Christians, and in my experience, especially younger Christians, to surround themselves with non-Christian friends regularly. There are some Christians whose primary social group are entirely non-Christians. And this is extremely dangerous to your eternal reward. 
Oftentimes when this happens, it's Jesus' example that's brought forward as an excuse. Because after all, isn't it Jesus who ate with sinners? Isn't it Jesus who reclined at table with prostitutes and tax collectors? But this does not justify spending seldom time among the people of God. First and foremost, this was during Jesus' very specific intensive three-year mission. He had 30 years of life before this where he wasn't doing that nearly as often. Keep that in mind. But more importantly, most of the time Jesus spent in his ministry was with his disciples. He would occasionally preach to the pagans and then they would retreat. Most of his ministry was actually in the presence of his followers, his financial supporters. So what Jesus' example does teach us is that, yes, you should be encouraged to have non-Christian friends, but for the purpose of evangelism. The mission of the church is not to build a spiritual bomb shelter and wait for Jesus to nuke the place. The mission of the church is to make disciples and baptize them. And we can't do that if we're huddling in our own little corner and we're never out in the world. So yes, have non-Christian friends. Spend time with them. But my hope and prayer is that you're doing so with an agenda. You're spending time with them to make them a disciple, to baptize them. If that's not your agenda, I have to ask you, what's the point? Why would you want to spend so much time with people who are fundamentally opposed to the most important thing about you? So I hope you do have non-Christian friends. I hope you are actively praying for ways to show the love of Christ, to preach the gospel to them. But the bulk of our social life should not be spent with pagans, but with Christians. Because the longer you spend with the pagans, the more likely they are to eventually corrupt your character. The longer you live with the pagans, the more likely you will be to live like the pagans. Our text today doesn't just warn us of bad company. It emphasizes the peril of being apart from the people of God. This is why David maintains the evil of forcing him away from the presence of the Lord. We just saw this in verses 19 and 20, that those who are kicking him out of Israel, what are they doing? They're kicking him out of the presence of the Lord, away from the heritage of the Lord, telling him to go and serve other gods. David knows that Saul and his men are forcing him out of Israel, and Israel is where God's presence uniquely resides. Israel is the only place proper worship can be done in the Cold Covenant. So to be outside of Israel is effectively forcing someone into idolatry because there's no heritage or worship outside of Israel. Therefore, the Lord is not there. David is being pushed out of the presence of the Lord, away from the worship of the Lord, into idolatry. And guess what? What can be said of Israel then can be said of the new Israel today, the Christian church. The Christian church is the new Israel. She is where the presence of God dwells. Outside of the church, there is no presence of God. There is no worship. This can be demonstrated by the many metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. Ephesians 5 uses metaphors saying that she is the household of God. Or forgive me, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 5. The church is the household of God. The holy temple where the Lord dwells. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. Therefore, to be outside of the Christian community, to be outside of the church, is ultimately to be outside of God's presence. By the way, this makes sense of Paul's reference to the final stage of church discipline. When, we, when a church disciplines someone and they are excommunicated, they are removed from the church, Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 5 as delivering them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
Paul knows that to be outside the Christian church is to be in Satan's household, under his dominion, in his presence, rather than with the Lord. And so my hope is that 1 Samuel 26 is a reminder to us all of the great importance of the company that we keep. If we want to finish the race and receive our reward, we need to surround ourselves with fellow runners who will encourage us and who will help us. Because it's a difficult race we run. Keeping faith is hard. Righteousness is hard. It's never been easy. And God knows this. And so he longs to reward you for your hard work. God loves to reward his beloved children. So go get your reward. Go get yours. Go get your reward. Live a life of faithful obedience to God. Not so that he will love you. Because he already does.